Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell on High Water, my new podcast from The Recount with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. After a week-long absence from the electoral fray due to COVID-19, Donald Trump is back on the road and back to his rallies, so we thought we'd sit down with my old friend James Carville, a man who knows as much as anyone on the planet about the campaign trail, its white-knuckle twists and hairpin turns, its frequent detours and occasional dead ends, and whose views about where that trail is headed in 2020 are adamant and definitive. The Democrats are poised to have a huge win. I say this based on prior elections. I say this based on current polling. And I say this based on the way that Trump is behaving himself. James Carville is without a doubt the most famous political strategist of our time and maybe all time. Known around the world as the Raging Cajun and to his wife, Mary Madeline, as Old Serpent Head, Carville came to national attention in 1992 as the presiding guru behind the campaign of Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton. A classic late bloomer, Carville didn't run a winning campaign until he was in his 40s, but starting in the mid-1980s, he and his partner Paul Begala ran up a string of victories, Pennsylvania Governor Bob Casey, Georgia Governor Zell Miller, and Pennsylvania Senator Harris Wofford, that helped them land the gig with Clinton. Carville's hot temper, southern fried charisma, and theatrical squalls of fury at the media, some of it real, some of it feigned, turned him into a cable news celebrity, and after Clinton's victory, his star turn in the Oscar-nominated documentary The War Room turned him into a legend, not only for his role in putting Clinton in the White House, but for coining the phrase, it's the economy stupid. In the years since then, Carville has worked on countless campaigns in America and abroad, advised Hillary Clinton in both her 2008 and 2016 campaigns, written books, given speeches, and held forth about every political topic under the sun, including, of course, Donald Trump. In January of this year, he endorsed the doomed campaign of Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, worried loudly that the Democratic Party might be too woke for its own good, and was skeptical of Joe Biden's prospects. But with the passage of time and the onset of the pandemic, Carville has shifted from bearish to bullish about the likelihood of beating Trump, in the process berating Democrats for being unable to get past their PTSD from 2016, and see what to him seemed like the obvious realities unfolding before our eyes. All of which brings us to one of many questions I was eager to put to James today. In the wake of what may be the worst two-week stretch any incumbent president has ever experienced in October of an election year, is it possible that maybe, just maybe, we are headed for a Biden landslide? For the answer to that and a ton of other pressing questions, take a listen to James Carville as he joins us on Hell and High Water. James, it's great to have you here, um, and there is so much to discuss. Well, um, John, you know, we would go back for a long time, and so we'll, we'll have a good show. Let's go. You've seen more politics than I have, but I've seen a fair amount. And I've never seen anything quite like the last 10 days or so. And I'm going to read you something right now that just struck me. I was reading Andrew Sullivan, and he wrote this thing. This is just a good way to sort of tee up where we're at right here. Says as is, as so often these days, it's the onion for the win. Quote: Trump attempts to pivot narrative away from coronavirus controversy by molesting child of fallen soldier. It's an onion headline, and yet that headline barely exaggerates how wildly the Trump train has gone off the rails in these last weeks of his this campaign. We've been watching in real time as a seriously sick and unstable president has ambushed and wrecked the first debate, presided over a super spreader viral event at the White House itself ranted on Twitter in all caps while hopped up on steroids, called on his attorney general to arrest his political opponents, announced a cure, why the fuck not, walked away from a desperately needed stimulus, 
canceled the next debate and encouraged the country to let the coronavirus rip some more. The Mussolini photo op, like a bad reality show finale, revealed a figure like Krusty the Clown, finished but still performing, gasping under inches of makeup, dead inside, apart from regular swoons of rage and resentment, saluting the air. That pretty much sums it up, right, James? That's where we are? Is that really where we are? When he gives the recap, it's all true. Look, the first thing is, he is trying to lose. He's not trying to win, right? He's just not trying to win. He's just, he's doubling down on his base. He's raging. Arrest Obama. Of course, I don't think Jamie Harrison needs a GOTV program. If, if they're talking about arresting Obama, I think he's going to do, I think, I think we're going to have enhanced democratic based turnout in South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, you name it. He is trying to drill down and get his base so agitated that the country will say, just let him go in peace. He is negotiating a pardon from Andrew Cuomo right now. <laughs> That's what he's doing. Yeah. Exactly what he's doing. I got one pill you can take, and this will all be over. I got another pill you can take, and we'll have the militia and everything activate. Yeah. And just tell people it's not worth it. All I want to do is go to Mar-a-Lago and start Trump TV. That's his best hope now. He's not going to win this election. I've been saying this from day one. And I, I forget one more, I was telling like one more email from Daniel Schwartz Esquire about how nervous I'll make his mother and her friends <laughs> when I'm talking about it. Biden's going to win. Yeah. <laughs> but this is what he's doing. Right. He is, he is hardening and calcifying his support to where, you know, and he'll say it was stolen. He's not going anywhere. And he'll try to cut a deal. Now you have the story in the one story about the $21 million in Las Vegas. And then there's another story about uh, 20, not $21 million somewhere in upstate New York and Las Vegas. I can't keep my mind around all of these other indictable offenses. Right. And this is what's, this is exactly what's going on. He is trying to negotiate a pardon. So there's a lot to unpack there and, and we're going to do it over the course of the next you know hour or so, but let's just step back in here. Look at the state of the race. We have had a race that has been stable for months with Joe Biden with a substantial national lead and a smaller but stable lead in pretty much every battleground state. And in the course of the last 10 days or so, when a lot of that stuff that Sullivan recounted happened, you know, starting with the performance in the first debate and everything that's happened since then, including, of course, most notably the president contracting COVID-19, the situation in the polling has just gotten worse for Trump. The national lead, now you're seeing polls that have him, the CNN poll has him up by what, like 14, 15 points nationally. And, you know, the Pennsylvania polls have him, have Biden at 50 and and up by double digits. He's got giant leads in, in Wisconsin and Michigan, tighter a little bit in the Southwest. And you're a great consumer of, of polling information over, over the years I've known you. A, do you believe it? Do you trust the polls? I know you said you don't think he can win, but as you look at these polls, do you look at them and say, yeah, that's just about right. That's what I think the race is right now. Well, of course I trust polls. And by the way, a polling average in 2016, the day before the election was 3.4. It ended up 2.1. And there was a late surge. It was in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Uh, No doubt about that. But they were not manifestly off. Right. 
And the idea that you have that many interviews and everybody's so paranoid about, paranoid about how many high school, you know, non-college whites you have in your sample. I mean, they have every kind of check that you can imagine. So in 2016, Trump won the Electoral College, he got 46.1. Uh, he had Comey. There was the whole stupid email story. There were, it, it was one of these things where five things had to go Trump's way for him to win, and all five did. Yep. Since then, in 90% of the off-year elections, the Republicans have grotesquely underperformed. I mean, like eight or nine points, not just underperforming. I mean, massive underperforming. Right. Then you have 2018. Well, 2018 was the highest turnout we've had since women were granted the right to vote and the biggest margin. And it was not produced by one party being more excited than another. There was enormous Republican turnout. Right. It, it wasn't like a 2014. Right. If you look at the NBC Wall Street Journal poll from July of 19, January 2020, and today, there's, there's some improvement, but not massive improvement. He never was going to be reelected, ever. And of course, the, this has just made it even worse for him. Yeah. But they, I've never bought into it. He has no hidden strength. There's no thing out there. There's no army in waiting that is waiting to be activated right. to throw a switch. Everybody goes batshit because, oh, they're running a registration battle in Florida. So the guy says, 58,000 new Republican registrants. There are 43,000 new Democrats. 10 million people can vote in Florida. I, I, I'm sorry. I just can't get gassed up. <laughs> About 15,000 new registrants, and I don't even know where they're going to vote. Yeah. You know, you've been pointing this out for a long time, but it's certainly the case that if you look back over the course of the last three and a half years, that in every opportunity where voters have had a chance to vote on Trump by proxy, the country has sent a pretty clear, loud message that they are trying to vote Donald Trump out of office, whether that's in midterm elections, off-year elections, by-elections, state legislative races, county court races, like you pick a race, Republicans have been getting their asses kicked up and down the ballot for now for three and a half years. And, and that's, I agree with you about that 100%. That's the first thing. The other thing is you look at these, these polls and forget about the top lines. You look at what's happening at the demographic level. Every major cohort, you look at seniors, you look at women, you look at suburban voters, every one of them is collapsing around him, except for you know his core irreducible base. And I now hear people inside the White House who are like the biggest Trump denialists you know, up till two weeks ago. Even they now are saying inside the White House, we can't see the bottom. We could end up in the low 30s before this thing. If we keep on this trajectory, we could be in the low 30s. I, I think it's like there's almost no one, if you gave them sodium pentothal right now, including even the nuts on the right, who would claim that this is, thing is not falling apart for Trump right now in a, in a vivid, dramatic, probably ir irretrievable way. All right. So I want to make a couple of points here. First of yeah. all, there was one time of peril for the Democrats, and that was in the lead up to the Iowa caucus through South Carolina. There was some chance that the party could have fractured or just gone over the, the left side. And when they were having a discussion about whether that guy that killed all the people at the Boston Marathon should be voting from the jail cell, that, that was scary. Once we sounded the alarm and Brother Clyburn dropped the hammer, that was the end of it. Yeah. There was some peril for the Democrats from, say, 10 days before Iowa through South Carolina. 
you're getting ahead of where I was, but I'm just going to play it here. There was a viral Carville moment in January, uh, maybe early February, where uh, you were on with Brian Williams on, on MSNBC. Here's James kind of flipping out a little bit about the state of the Democratic Party. There's only one moral imperative in this country right now, and that is to beat Donald Trump. That's the only moral imperative. It's the only thing I want to hear. And and until we understand that, we win every argument. Brian, we win an argument on anything. We don't win elections because we talk about stuff that is not relevant. We had a great experience in 2018. And the day after, we started all this goofy stuff. So hopefully we got time to jerk this thing back and be about health care and prescription drug prices and education and infrastructure and, and climate and diplomacy and rejuvenating, whatever it is. But this is not happening so far. Okay, so James, that was you flipping out about the state of the Democratic Party, basically saying like, you know, we got to get our shit together here. And your concerns at the time were that the party could be, you used the word cult. And you were saying to me a lot, you know, you got to win. Winning is the only thing that matters. This party seems to have forgotten that. You were worried about the party getting too left and too woke. So what pulled it back? You were very concerned it was about to cream off the rails, and then it didn't. So what happened was I was in Miami, and my office called and said that MSNBC wants to know if you want to go on. And I said, well, what's the address? And it was like three blocks from where I was. I said, okay, I'll go on. And you asked me, okay, you invited me to the party. And I just seen what happened to the British Labor Party that, you know, the, remember the night Michael Foote, the longest suicide note in history, and we sure. were writing our own suicide sure. note. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, and after Nevada, I said, look, Bernie Sanders is now the front runner. Get, get, get over it. He has the most money. He's carried Nevada. He's got the most energy. And so we got to act like he's the front runner. And then, you know, South Carolina came along. Yeah. And, and you pointed out, I think, you know, that 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 moment was the moment where for a lot of Democrats, where there was clarity, it was like Bernie's going to be the nominee unless someone stops Bernie. Right. And for the large part of the Democratic Party, which is moderate and not progressive. And importantly, most importantly, I think this is your point about Biden is he understood all along that, you know, one of the great lessons of Democratic Party politics over the last you know half century is that. The Democratic candidate who has the black base of the party is the, is going to be the nominee. And Biden said he had it. And it turned out to be his right. He was right. He had the support of those people. And and when he got those people, plus all these other white moderates in the party who, who were scared off by Sanders, that's a coalition that made him formidable in the end. Right. It, it, it's really a, a weird combination that the most two most loyal voting blocks are African-Americans and college women. Yep. Really are. I mean, and they, they're going to vote. I saw a poll in Pennsylvania. They might vote 70 percent for Biden. I, I mean, maybe you can say Jews, but there are a hell of a lot more college educated white women than they are Jews to vote, you know, but then they both come clocking in at like 70, 70 percent or so. So it, it is. It's an amazing transformation of the party. Let, let me come back to Trump real quick here and, and just just ask you this. I mean, you know, if you think back to the again, our lives in politics, right? You know, Reagan gets shot and comes out the other side of that with enormous political capital, much more popular, much more powerful than he was before he got shot. Bill Clinton, after Oklahoma City, gets a huge boost. Generally, you know, a president who's beset in some way by some tragedy or some challenge or some crisis 
they get a benefit out of it if they handle it marginally well. And Donald Trump just got COVID, you know, and under any normal set of rules, and I know the normal set of rules don't apply to Donald Trump. That's the whole point. But you might have thought that Trump would come out of this in a better place, that you could have gotten some sympathy. People would have seen him in a more empathetic light, whatever. But instead, he's like come through this thing and he's in a worse place today, I would say, politically than he was before he got COVID. What do you attribute that to? Is it his performance, the way he's behaved, the videos he's put out? What's he doing that's causing people to be alienated by that rather than rally around him? Well, a couple of things. Number one is wearing a mask and exercising caution is not a 50-50 issue. All right. It's a 75-25 issue. So people see him. He's infected. He's cavalier about like Secret Service agents, supporters, you name it. Generally, what happens when somebody goes through something like this, they try to tell it was a lesson I learned here. You know, I, you have an experience like this, you, it, it, it causes you to grow. It makes you refocus. You got none of that from him. And all you got was doubling down. Then on top of that, you had the Amy COVID Barrett event of, of which <laughs> it, people saw it, you understand people are, are kind of nervous, you know, not just Democrats. Not That's not a thing. You know, should I be crowded or if I go to Walmart, do I keep six feet away? I mean, people just live that way in their everyday life. I mean, maybe not the Michigan militia, but but most people do. And they didn't see any growth in him. And he is mortally afraid to show any doubt, any weakness. You know, that helps him with the 35, but just really turns him off with 65. And he needs the 35 to stay out of jail. Let's take a quick break here and go pay some bills. We'll come back uh, and keep this conversation going with my friend James Carville. We are back uh, with the one and only Ragin Cajun. Still Ragin, even though you're an old man now and you're still Ragin. How do you keep, keep Ragin at this age, dude? I don't know, man. I just, I was just... I think it's lucky I run every day. Um, You're almost the kind of definition of piss and vinegar, I would say, um, with some hot sauce in there, with some uh, some Cajun. That would be 55. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, for sure. Tell me about what you think, you know, as you, as you look back, like you got, you know, your fame obviously owes directly to the 92 race and, and Bill Clinton. And, and you were talking a minute ago about the way the party has been transformed. And, I, and I'm curious about, you know, having been, integral to helping Bill Clinton win, right. having been involved in, in Hillary Clinton's world in a more informal way over the years. You know, you, were, you came late to success right. in political consulting, famously in the war room. You talk about how you hadn't won a race into your 40s, right? Correct. But so in this late life period where you've had a, one of the most important presidential election victories and then have been able to observe at close range the way this party has changed, sometimes to helping it win Barack Obama, sometimes causing it to lose in the two Bush terms. What, what can you tell me about where we stand here in 2020? Is this a majoritarian party? Is this a party that can be, that is built to be a dominant national party going forward because of the way it's changed? Right. Well, first of all, I'll talk about today just a little bit. The, the Democratic coalition that exists for Biden is not going to hold. You're not going to have four-star generals and Bernie so, I mean, it's just not going to hold, right? And that's okay. And the Democrats have always been a party of coalitions. 
You mean like the Republican support for Biden, like that that's unusual, the degree to which Biden is supported well, the, by- The degree of what he's going to get, all right, retired admirals and, you know, 20-year-old urban females. And I mean, it, it, this is not going to hold, nor should it. Of course, I don't know where they go. I mean, the, the, the big thing is the Democrats have always, you had a lot of racial issues. You know, Jesse Helms. And it was a lot of, you would hear, they, you wanted that job. And you don't even hear about affirmative action anymore. It just doesn't leave, in, exist. And there, there actually has gotten better. I, you're not supposed to say that, but it just is. I mean, the, the Jamie Harrison is tied in South Carolina is significant. I'm sorry. I, you just right. cannot say that Barack Obama got elected. It, right. I don't know. It, it doesn't mean that, that you don't have terrible problems with police and anything else. Right. Jamie Harrison, the, the the black Democratic candidate for Senate running against Lindsey Graham. We'll talk a little bit more about that race in a minute. But yeah, very an incredible thing in South Carolina to have a black Senate candidate. And of course, you know, Tim Scott, the current Republican senator from South Carolina, also African-American. It's really pretty simple, John. The, the Republicans became addicted to whites without a college degree. And they kind of abandoned the playing field everywhere. And honestly, that's just a shrinking demographic. What is growing in America? Married people or non-married people? People that go to church or don't go to church? All right? What, people that are white or people that are not white? Literally every long-range bet they made was a bad bet. Right. Now, it, it, it had, like anything else that we missed, is it had one giant final moment, and that was 2016. Yeah. And that was just that... that Furious, that bright sunset. That's what that was. <laughs> and you're going to see that the, the autopsy of 2012 is going to be particularly va valuable in the stories that are going to come out as to how the Republican Party doubled down on a shrinking demographic and got itself caught in a vice that it can't get out of. Right. So those who don't know about this or, or, or forget, after the 2012 election, Barack Obama's reelection, Ryan Priebus then the Republican Party chair, commissioned an autopsy, like what the fuck was going on? Why did Barack Obama win two races in a row? And they looked and said, essentially, the party's too old, the party's too white, we got to get straight with non-white voters, younger voters, all the people that James just mentioned. And it was like, there was a moment where they said, hey, this is what we got to do going forward. And instead of doing that, they went exactly the opposite direction and nominated Donald Trump and still managed to pull off that victory. So let me ask you this question. There's one true north for James Carville. It's always been like, if you don't win, there's no fucking point. You know, if you get trapped in purity tests, if you get trapped in cultish behavior, if you have purity tests is the best way I can phrase it. You have these things you want to do as a political party. You assemble a coalition. You have objectives. You have things you want to do to change the country and make people's lives better. Republicans and Democrats have different ideas about what those are. But in the end, if you don't win, you're fucked. And so the majoritarian impulse is essential. If you're going to win this election, and particularly if you're going to assemble a governing coalition that's going to last for some period of time where you can take on big problems. I would say Bill Clinton's election was a moment when after losing three national elections in a row, where the party looked up and said, yeah, that's we got to do that. And I guess the question is right now, is Biden an illustration of the fact that right now Democrats finally got that message in 2020. Do you think you've made your point and that the party now gets that in order to get shit done, and more importantly, in the context of Trump to stop bad shit from happening, that you got to win? You know, it was the one thing 
that I used to hate as a campaign manager is James, the activist community wants to meet with you. Oh shit. Somebody let's slough this off. This is going to go nowhere because they're, they're really good people. They have an agenda. They want historical tax credit. So they want, you know, other things. And it's all good. I probably agree with 90% of what the, the liberal activist community wants. I'm just not going to make my campaign about it. Right. All right. So I, ju- I just slough them off and I didn't want any of them. I didn't want any activists on my staff. We had one, we had one freaking mission here to win this election. All right. I, you know, and I, I, I don't want somebody coming in and saying, you know, we really got to talk more about this or that. No, it's not a crusade. It's not a crusade. It's right. not a cause. When this is over, I'm leaving. Okay. Do it. Do what the fuck you want to do. I'm, I'm not sticking around. All right. I'm, I'm going to do campaigns in, in Brazil. I'm giving speeches and, you know, shit, I'm going to go do movies. I'm, I'm not sitting in a freaking White House or anything else. So you can do all you want. All right. This is, that's a good place to take a break. I'm going to take one more break here and then we're going to come back and, and actually contemplate with James a scenario that now suddenly people seem to think could be true. We're going to come back and talk about the possibility of a Biden landslide after these messages. I think there is a better chance that Donald Trump does not run for re-election than he's re-elected. There's no chance he's going to be re-elected. Somebody's going to have to go tell this guy, look, you, you just can't risk the humiliating defeat that's going to come your way. And Jared or somebody's got to sit down and have a, a real like talk, you know, a real man to man. Come to Jesus, as people used to say. I don't know what it is, but this is that which can't continue will not. And he, the Republican Party can't continue in this direction. They got to think of something different. And we are back. And that was one of many uh, viral Carville moments. A man who is not actively engaged in this campaign whatsoever, but every time he goes on television, manages to say something that catches fire, still has the ability in, uh, in this uh, social media world a world he's not really part of. I don't even know if you have a Twitter account, James, but you... I, I have one, but Bradley does it for me. Yeah, <laughs> but you, but you still managed to, you still managed to set the set the Twitters on fire every once in a while, and you did that in that case when you you said that uh, Trump was more likely to drop out than to to win. It brings us back to the top of our conversation, which is like what Trump is doing right now. So I just ask you as a professional, right? This past week, the the Commission on Presidential Debates came out and said. You know what? The next debate, the town hall debate is supposed to happen in Miami this week. Uh, we are going to have that debate. We're going to have it virtually. And Donald Trump got on television and said, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do a virtual debate. And I ask you just here as a, as a practitioner, someone who knows something about campaigns, given where Trump is right now in this race, does he not need these debates? Is that not madness to give up the opportunity to debate with Joe Biden when you're behind in the ways that he's behind in this race? Okay, let's go to the better chance he drops out and wins. Yeah. That was an accurate statement because there's no chance he's going to win. Right. There was some chance in early August that he would drop out. However remote, there is no even the most remote chance he went. What I did not factor into my calculation at the time, again, I go back to what I originally said. All he wants is just the hardest 35 he can do and have the country so exhausted with him they let him retire in peace. That's what this campaign's about. 
Right. That's all it's about. This is not hyperbolic. This is what you really believe at this point. Like Trump knows your view is just to be clear. You think Trump knows he's losing is now resigned to losing. And that's why I asked the question about the debate, because that would then make sense if he's really trying to lose the race. Well, maybe that makes sense then. He's not trying. He knows he can't win it. But when you say, you know, if he went to the debate and maybe said I had COVID and I really learned something about it, and that he is so scared that would affect his 35. He doesn't care. He's not going to try to get up to, to 45. His entire calculation, I can't do anything that risks my position with the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo people or whoever, all right? So there's no reason. He's not going to debate. He's not going to say, I, you know, this has made me a more humble man. He's not going to say anything that you would expect him to do. He can't because he wants the 35 to be as hard for him. And you can see this already in the press. You know, maybe the best thing to do with Trump is let's just get beyond the Trump years. Let's pass the baton, let the guy go, and let's get on and repair our relationships with our allies. And, you know, let's build the country back together. Let's be less divided. The last thing in the world we need is have a trial with Trump and have, you know, 10,000 people out, militiamen out in front of the courthouse. So you know what? And that's an attractive alternative to people. And that's what they're buying home. And I can't say it, but you would be stunned how many people that really cover him agree with me. Right. I mean, stunned. Agree, Agree with you that he's, what he's really trying to do here is- Stay out of jail. Stay out of jail, hold on to his base and- Let him go. Right. We got to do something else. Right. So, you know, the alternative view is that he's just getting ready to try to steal it. Right. You've said before, the only way you can win it is to steal it. And so whether it's voter suppression, which they are actively engaged in in almost every battle, in every battleground state in the country already, right. intimidation, litigation, poll watchers trying to build an army of poll watchers to scare people away. Potential for foreign interference again, Russia coming back. That's a thing the FBI director says we got to watch out for. And then the possibility in the post-election period that he's going to try to like, you know, invalidate a bunch of Democratic ballots. His whole thing about mail-in ballots, right, is setting up the a fight that says this has all been a rigged system. All that matters was the election day vote. Your view is that what, that he's given that up or we should still be worried about that? What I said on your own roots is we must win by more than five and that's no jives. <laughs> all right. <laughs> People say, we're not going to know. They, they, they could count the absentees in Michigan here. And Look, they, the absentees are pre-counted in North Carolina, Florida, and Georgia. I'm going to be on election night. If he carries New Hanover County, North Carolina, he gets 62% in Gwinnett. He gets over 50 in Seminole or Duval. It's over. I don't, I don't care when you count the votes in Michigan. But, but again, just come back to the, the question I'm trying to ask you is this, is do you now think he basically is is resigned to losing and he's just trying to make a quiet exit and stay out of jail on one hand? Or do you think he's going to fight like hell to try to win this thing, but just not win it through democratic means? He's just going to try to steal it. Which of those two is the way he's going? There's a point to put what you cannot steal an election. All right. Even, you know, Neil Gorsuch at a, at a point, if it's close, we're going to lose. It stole the 2000 election. That, 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 really changed the world because it told them they just could steal an election right in front of you. And, you know, of course, all of the press said Al Gore did the noble thing. Okay. If you're close, they'll steal it from you. They'll steal it from you. Just say, I do not think this is going to be close, but if it's within five and if he can just make it where there's any doubt 
that's going to strengthen his bargaining position to let him go to Mar-a-Lago, all right, and stop this. If he gets beat the way that I think he will, in the way that I hope he will, it's just nothing he can do. And by the way, if you ever looked at the Republican Senate map in 2022, it's really shitty for them. It's as bad a map as I've ever seen. Right. So if Biden carries Florida by six, which he will, and Ron DeSantis in the Florida legislature says, we're just going to instruct the Florida electors to vote for Trump. What do you think Marco's going to do? He said, I just got beat. (laughs) You just can't do that. There's a point at which no matter how tough and hard and corrupt and, and venal and partisan you are, there is a point at which you just cannot steal an election. So that's the thing. That's the point I really want to get to here is this is this thing. I think the story this week, I said mentioned sodium pentothal earlier. I think if you gave sodium pentothal to the 500 most influential people in politics right now, they all would cough up one word. The word would be landslide. And some of them would put a question mark at the end of it. Some of them wouldn't. But right now, everyone's thinking about that. Ted Cruz on CNBC last Friday said, that, that if people are upset and depressed on election day, he said, quote, I think we could lose the White House and both houses of Congress. That could be, it could be a bloodbath of Watergate proportions. That's Ted Cruz talking about the state of the race. You hear McConnell. McConnell's freaking out about the Lindsey Graham race, which you talked about before a little bit. You know, even inside the White House, as I suggested earlier, people are, are starting to like look at this and say, wait, the thing that we thought could never happen in this polarized a country that, you know, you would never see an election where a president could again win 400 electoral votes. People are now talking about that as a possibility. They're looking at these polls. They're looking at the Senate races. And that is on everyone's mind. Now, Democrats don't want to talk about it because they don't want their people to be complacent. Republicans don't want to talk about it because they don't want to have the people be demoralized. Media is, is has PTSD from 2016, doesn't want to be wrong again. The cable networks need the drama for ratings. No one wants to come out and say the word landslide, but it's everybody you and I know is thinking about, is it possible? Do you see that? Is that what you're, as you sit here, you're thinking, yeah, a landslide could happen. That's where we could be headed. According to Nate Silver, I, I neither mock or understand his model. Okay, but I think he's got some thought into it. He says there's a 35% chance. Uh, well, he, he's being unduly cautious. So it was in September, Politico had a headline and it says, Trump narrows gap in Wisconsin. I said, oh, shit. So the Marquette poll, he, it was, uh, this may not be exactly right. It was 49-44 in the last poll, and it was now 48-44. Right. All right. So, but Politico knows if, if you have anything remotely bad news, every Democrat is going to glum on to it, is going to resend it to you, every Republican is. If you say Wisconsin stable, Nobody's going to send it to you. Right. Okay. I mean, it, it, it is in, in like every nervous, you know, people always tell me, don't say that, James. Don't say that. You just don't know. I, I do know. I'm doing this shit all my life. I know. I'm not scared to say it. And they say, you know what, James, we like when you go on TV, you say what you think, but I wish you, I wish you wouldn't say you think Biden is going to win. Well, I can't go on TV and say what I think and I say I think Biden's going to win. <laughs> it's a contradictory statement. <laughs> okay? Right. Yeah. All right. The following Senate races are plus or minus two and a half. 
Texas, two in Georgia. Well, the one in Georgia is a little different, so let's just say one in Georgia. South Carolina, probably North Carolina, Kansas, Montana, Maine, Alaska. All right, let's just say that's eight. I, I don't know. It, don't forget Colorado. Colorado's not plus or minus two and a half. Colorado. Well, well, okay. Well, you're saying those are that yeah, close, right? Yeah, that's a done. Out of reach, right? All right. Uh, I, Colorado, Arizona are gone for Republicans. So let's say you have eight states that are plus or minus two and a half right now. Right. It's not going to break four four. That would right. be the most. It it will break six two or seven one. Now it it could theoretically break against us, but I think the odds are. So when people allocate, they allocate like it's all going to go down the middle, and that generally does not happen. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but it is unlikely. I think, and I think you've covered the politics long enough to say you'd probably agree with me on that. Oh, I agree with you about that. So you see it. You, you, you're like, you're thinking, you're thinking it right now, you're, and you're more confident than that you're willing to come right out and just say not just that Biden's going to win, but you think – High probability, reasonably high probability of a landslide proportion kind of victory. Yeah. And, and I'll say what, about, you know, John Maynard Keynes, one of my heroes, he said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? Yeah. The facts <laughs> as I see them now lead to that. But so I'm just saying right now, every piece of evidence I see tells me it's going to be a big year. I mean, we thought we'd max out on house seats. I mean, you got a guy like Mark Gersh, who is like Mark is one of the more internally not particularly optimistic, even David Wasserman, you know, who's hardly a Democratic homer. Every time they, but every 10 races they move, they move eight the Democratic way. Right. I mean, the, right. the Charlie Cook is a you know, fellow Louisiana guy. He's one of my oldest friends. They they move things like you move a battleship. They don't just they're not very cavalier about changing a race from likely to lean, yeah, lean right. to toss up. And everything you see goes in one direction. Right. And so that's evidence. And they talk to every poster, they talk to everybody on the ground and, and they read everything and they got great contacts. And I, I just place a lot of value in overall what they're saying. You know, the notion that Biden, given his biography and given his his makeup and his appeal, I think a lot of people thought, you know, that Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania were places where he'd be very competitive. And he seemed that seems to be true right now. But if you go to the landslide scenario, it, what it entails is a big thing happening, which is Democrats suddenly winning a bunch of states in the Southwest, where you're from, you know, the Sun Belt, which has been the core of Republican dominance for a long time. So you're now talking about North Carolina and, and, and Florida and Arizona in the battleground states, but you now have better work out there saying, hey, you could take Texas, Joe Biden. And they're, they're starting to now spend a little money in Texas. And, you know, Missouri suddenly it looks competitive. Now, I'm not saying those are all going to fall, James. I'm just saying that, like, I guess that's my question. Is it a world where Georgia has been a toss up for Biden for months now? Do you see that possibility that that Biden could potentially win some of these states in the Southwest that have been out of reach for Democrats for some period of time, some number of cycles where you just didn't ever say, well, you know, Texas, though, maybe someday in the future that could happen. But right now, 
that Barry's been a toss up, you know, basically been a tie in every poll of 2020. So a, a, a good poll, I, I will need confirmation because sometimes good, even the polls can be wrong. Had Biden get 31% of the whites in Georgia, right? Stacey got 25. Yep. And lost by two and a half. And by the way, just given the demographic changes, you re-ran Georgia 2018 to 2020, Stacey might even win. All right. If Biden is truly getting 31% of the whites in, in Georgia, he's going to win by four or five points. Right. They're going to even be that close. And, and the basic calculation in Georgia is you figure 60 white, 30 black, and 10 other. All right, get whatever the white is, there's 31 of 60, you know, two-thirds of 10, and 95 of 30, and you can do the math in the back of your head. If you talk about the Southwest, I think this can be the first time in, in I'm going be 76, maybe in my lifetime, where you're going to end up with Democratic senators in Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Nevada. Right. I, I mean, the Southern Rocky Mountains, they are like New England now. Yeah. All right. And Texas, so after Beto's race, and everybody said Texas, and oh, yeah, all of these quants are saying that, you know, 2026 in February the 18th, Texas is going to cross a blue state <laughs> because of the number of non-whites. Then all of a sudden, you had this big election, Beto. And this guy, Nate Cohen, at the time, I think he's pretty good. He did analysis. Beto didn't do, he didn't have, youth turnout didn't help him. Hispanics didn't really, you know, about what you expect. African-Americans, about what you expect. You had this massive shift of white voters. Yep. So no one wants to say the most important demographic in the country right now are actually white people. <laughs> okay? <laughs> they probably, it's 70% of the country. I mean, it, yep. and so you, it, it, it's not cool to say, it's actually white people who's going to be going to determine this election. But right. if you run a campaign, you're not trying to be cool. You're just trying to win the goddamn thing. You know, yeah. you're not some urbanist sitting around in a coffee shop in Manhattan, you know, theorizing about, you know, Noam Chomsky or whatever his name was. But it, well, Norman Schwarzkopf Stumsky, Chomsky. Um, but here's my question. So you you made the point you're you're about winning elections and you're not a policy guy. You're not a really even a governance guy. You want you have you're liberal, you have progressive That's goals, right. whatever. That's why you're doing this stuff. But I think about the story of my time covering politics has been the story of polarization, right? It's been the country increasingly ungovernable, not a lot getting done, unproductive congresses, Democrats, you know dominated more and more by their left flank, Republicans taken over completely by their right flank. Trump, you know, in the closing days of this election is spending his time talking about how you got to release Hillary's emails, telling Pompeo she got to, you got to do that. Telling Bill Barr, he's got to put Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden in jail. You know, that's like crazy talk, right? Governor Whitmer, we found out this week, had a domestic terror plot that was in, in motion to try to kidnap and kill her. That is how poisonous our politics are right now. And the depth of the division has never been worse and more dispiriting for a lot of people. People look at this and say, man, this fucking place is, is just fucked. So here's my question. A landslide for Biden 
Does that is that part of the way that this starts to change? Would that open the door to breaking the grip of this polarization? And could it point in a direction where we might be governable again and where some of this toxicity might get leached along with the departure of Trump? Some of this toxicity might get leached out of the system. Okay, so let, let's assume a moment that I'm right. And it's a big election night. Biden wins by a lot. I have learned over time to assume you're assuming that you're right is not all it's not a hundred percent the right thing to do, but it's often a smart move. What you're gonna have is the following two things are gonna happen, and they're gonna probably pick up some house seats. And I'm a liberal, I'm not a leftist, but but so you're gonna get this commentary. The Democrats have a blank slate. The truth of the matter is is that if what happens that I think happens happens, the incoming Democratic Senate and House caucus will be less progressive than the current Democratic Senate and House caucus. And people have not figured this out. Hickenlooper and Kelly and Harrison, Gross are are coming to town. All right? right. Jamie Harrison is decidedly not for the Green New Deal or Medicare for all. It's not like the squad gains power in that scenario. Not, not at all. But it's also the converse is going to happen is the House Republican and Senate caucus is going to be even more conservative, conservative. than it is now. And so what we're going to have to do is we're probably going to have to be willing to lose some people in our coalition. Maybe like the squad can become an adjunct to the party and, you know, can use their influence on on, on close votes. But understand what's going to be coming to town if we have a landslide. They, they, we, ha- we have every seat we can have in Boston and Manhattan and, and Los Angeles and, you know, and everything else. And, and I wonder whether, as a, as a closing thought here, to just finish this thought on the, on the Republican side, what happens in your view to the Republican Party? Is the Republican Party post a Biden landslide, or at least Biden wins this thing in a, in a definitive way where people think, you know, he's got a mandate and, and Trump has been, you know, dispatched. Is the party, is the Republican Party, does it go back to quote, I'm going to put quotes around this, quote, normal? Or is the Republican Party still a Trump party? Or is it a power struggle? What happens to that party you have spent so much of your life trying to beat? Is it a rump party that's left, you know, picking up table scraps? Or is that a party that now begins some kind of process of rebirth and regeneration and and uh, renewal. And who would ever thought that, you know, Bill Crystal would be like my new best political pal? Not uh, me. Not me. We do not know what the effect of this defeat will be on them. And understand, a lot of the institutional or establishment Republican Party are the home builders, all right? The, the beer distributors, the Realtors Association, they're going to be literally wiped out. So what's going to be the effect if they have a terrible defeat and somebody is running on a Trump agenda? And the guy says, you're destined, we're going to lose the election. Now, if you want to do that, you can go ahead and do that. We've taken, we've run this horse before, and it's really an A. And I see a new Republican Party. So you don't know, to, because once people get out of power, they want to be back in power. Yeah. You'd be surprised the number of Republicans that are not at all moderate that were pissed off when Biden pulled his negative spots 
when Trump got coronavirus. I had people texting me, James, what the fuck are y'all doing? Put them back up. And I mean, I'm talking about hardcore, wanna win, doctrinaire, dying the wool. The Republicans. Republican Republicans. Yeah, pure Republicans. Not, not rhinos, not and rhinos, they, like, like hardcore Republicans. Believe if you go into that caucus, a lot of them are pulling for a landslide. The only way that we don't, we have to hit bottom until we get better. But once you beat, you look entirely different. Yep. You know, Trump is trying to keep it a cult because he thinks that's his way out. Cults have never worked in American politics. They've been disruptive. They, they, they have caused angst and pain, but they generally do not bring you any power. Power. That is power. the only word that matters. Power. Listen to me, people. Power. You know? <laughs> All right. That is, I would say that is probably the, a very good last word. So thank you for taking the time. And I'm praying for a time when we will get back to, uh, I want you to buy world a record. goddamn steak. Let's go to one of these places in New York. That's expensive. And I'll get you to, you know, a, so, well, seriously, either you either got to get your ass up here and we got to have dinner or I got to get down him. there and, um, whatever. We'll I, like one, one, one side or the other, let's get together. And like, at some point we'll be able to be in the same place again. Dumbo for lunch. That's good. Oh, All right, man. man. Take care. All right, brother. Thank yeah. you. Take care. Hell and high water is a podcast from the recount. Thanks again to James Carville for being here with us. If you like this episode of hell and high water, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a nice rating for us on the Apple podcast app. It helps people find out what we are doing here. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handle the research. Sari Soffer is our producer, and Christian Fidel Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 